Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Thankfully, I've never had a gun pointed at me by a police officer. However, I've had my car searched twice, and I've been handcuffed once during traffic stops. The first time I had my car searched, I was pulled over for failure to stop completely at a blinking yellow light. Okay, maybe I didn't stop completely, but I slowed down to about three miles per hour, max. There wasn't another car in sight. It was around 1 a.m., and I was in the car with three friends, all black. After covering an NBA game that night and going to a Friday's restaurant afterward, I was taking one of my friends back to his apartment. When I saw the flashing lights behind me, I had a feeling this wasn't going to be routine. Not at 1 a.m., not driving while black with three other brothers in the car. Less than five minutes later, we're surrounded by four police cars, including one with a police dog. After the license and registration request, we're all asked to get out of the car so the police could search it. When one of my friends starts to protest, I told him to shut up, which he's still pissed about to this day. As they're conducting the search, patting us down, and finding nothing incriminating, I locked eyes with one black police officer in the crowd. I stared at him for a few seconds, then extended my arms outward as if to ask, what's up with this? He lowered his head. Then another officer approached me. He returns my driver's license, but then asks, do you have another form of identification other than your driver's license? I don't know why he asked me that, and I don't know what would have happened if I had said no. But I reached into my computer bag, which had already been sniffed by dogs, and handed him my New York Times identification card. His eyes got big. He did a double take, looking down at the ID, then looking back at me almost like the face on the ID and my face couldn't possibly match. Now this police officer wants to make small talk. What do you think about the Knicks this season, he asked. I smiled, but I couldn't help myself. I think my wife's going to be really worried if she wakes up and I'm still not home, I said. Can we go? No ticket was issued. And after about 30 nervous minutes, we were finally on our way.
To this day, I believe I was mistreated by police officers that night, but I know it could have turned out a lot worse. I remained calm, partly because I was scared and partly because I kept hearing my mother's voice in my head. I can handle a phone call from jail, she used to tell me. I'm afraid of getting a phone call from the morgue. Welcome to Black in the NFL. I'm your host, Clifton Brown. Watching the video of George Floyd's murder, the shooting of Jacob Blake, and hearing about Breonna Taylor's murder sickened me, but it didn't surprise me. That's a sad admission to make, but it's true. I've had excellent encounters with police officers, but I've also had a few bad ones, and I know many people who have. Police misconduct has been an issue for black people ever since I've been on the planet, and it spans well before that too. And I believe more people than ever are beginning to realize it. Today's guests are Ravens running back Mark Ingram, Flint police officer Dion Smith, who was a close friend of Mark Ingram's, Ravens Vice President of Security and former Baltimore police officer Darren Sanders, and Maryland House delegate and political activist Gabriel Acevedo. During this podcast, we'll discuss police brutality, the relationship between police and the black community, police training, and police funding. There's a distrust of the police dating back to the beginning of our history when they began as slave catchers. There's disproportionate police violence against black men still today. Yet there are many fine police officers performing a difficult and dangerous job that plays an important role in our society. This podcast is called Black in the NFL. So why are we doing an episode called Players and Police? Because these things impact so many people, including current and former Ravens players, like former Ravens wide receiver Torrey Smith. And so I'm sitting in the car, and all of a sudden there's like four cop cars that come up. And I'm like, what's going on? And so he walks up, and he was like, hey, do you mind we search your vehicle? I called my mom on the phone. But I called her just to talk to her, like, what should I do? She was like, don't let them search your car. She's like, why do they need to search your car? I was like, no. And he was like, all right, I'm going to have to ask you to step out of the vehicle. I had my phone on speakerphone, but I was by my wheel, and so I moved. I was like, what? And he pulled his gun out. And so when he pulled his gun out, you know, obviously, what's the reaction going to be from his partners that just came? They reacted. And so I'm like, all right, you can search this damn car. Like, I'm getting out. Like, you know, I'll get out. And I told my mom, I'm like, they put a gun out on me. And she was like, tell me where you are. I'm going to come. So I was like, whatever. I just got out of the car. And, you know, it's embarrassing. And so they went through my car, um, searched everything. And they were like, oh, well, you can go. You're fine. Um, we're just trying to search as many cars as we can since 9-11. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Then there's former Ravens wide receiver Anquan Bolden. My cousin Corey Jones, who was a, a drummer in a band, um, he was on his way home from a gig, and his car broke down on the side of the road. Long story short, he was killed by a cop. 
By day, Corey Jones was a housing inspector for the city of Delray Beach. By night, he was a drummer for his reggae band, Future Presidents. He was coming home from a gig that night when his car broke down at about 1.30 a.m. He called for a tow truck and was speaking with roadside assistance when an unmarked white van suddenly approached, going the wrong way up an I-95 on-ramp, and stopped diagonally in front of him. A man in a T-shirt and blue jeans approached. Bolden recalled the scene in a 60-second commercial sponsored by the Players Coalition that aired during last year's Super Bowl. Yeah, I'll never forget that night. I was still playing with the 49ers, and my wife walks up after the game. They told me that my cousin Corey had been killed. Corey broke down on the side of the road, and a plainclothes police officer pulled up. Then this guy starts screaming. All you hear from there is three shots. Why? Why is my son gone today? Why? He would give you his shirt. He would be cold just to keep you warm. This officer was in plain clothes. Corey had no way of knowing who he was. There's just some things that are bigger than football. And I felt like starting a players coalition and affecting change in this country was one of those things. We focused on police community relations, education and economic advancement, and criminal justice reform. Had it not been for the work that we do, Corey's death would have been in vain. The best way to inspire change is to be it. The officer, Newman Raja, claimed he identified himself as a police officer. A recording of the call with roadside assistance proved he didn't. Raja tried to claim immunity from prosecution under Florida's Stand Your Ground law. He was denied. Jones had a licensed gun that he bought days earlier. It was found 41 yards away from his body and was never fired. Raja's weapon was emptied, including the bullet that went through part of Jones's heart and both lungs as he tried to flee. I think at one point, we had all got numb to it. You know, you hear about officers killing um, unarmed black men, and it became so regular, so we got numb to it. And although we probably were compassionate about it, you were numb to it because it was another story. Here we go again, here we go again, or whatever. But then it hits my front door. And it's something that you have to deal with. It's not something that you can turn the TV off and then have it go away. No, it's somebody that you miss and somebody that you were raised with, somebody that you love is no longer here because of the neglect of somebody that was supposed to protect and serve. On April 25th, 2019, the same day that the Ravens selected Marquise Brown in the first round of the NFL draft, Roger was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Jones's parents celebrated justice that day, but they had lost a son, and Bolden had lost his cousin forever. Just to see what my family went through, it was, it was devastating. Um, it was tough. But we finally got our day in court, and after three and a half years, the officer was convicted. It was a... It was a I thought a moment of justice, but it, it also was a sobering moment for me because when the officer was convicted, we learned that he was the first 
officer in the state of Florida convicted for an on-duty shooting in the last 30 years. And I thought about how many shootings had happened in the state of Florida, officer involved in the last 30 years, and you only got one guy that was convicted. And I thought about how many, how many families not only didn't get you know, their day in court, but didn't get justice. And for me, um, you know, I didn't want that to happen to any other family nowhere. So, you know, the work that we're doing is not only in Florida, but it's, it's nationwide. It's still happening all the time. For me, it's not about bashing cops. It's not about anything like that, because I'll be the first to tell you, you know, if, if something happens, those are the people that you call. Those are the people that are sworn to protect and, and serve us as citizens. But a lot of t- sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think that's very unfortunate because if we're going to be at our best, you know, the community and the police have to work hand in hand. And a lot of times you don't see that happen. Bolden and his family got justice, but they are the exception. Justice for Breonna Taylor has been a plea around the country since she was shot and killed in her own apartment by a plainclothes police officer in March. In August, the Ravens wrote a letter to Senator Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was Taylor's Kentucky representative, urging him to bring the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020 to the Senate floor for a vote. He did not do so. I spoke to Ravens outside linebacker Matthew Judon for this podcast two days after it was announced that murder charges would not be brought against the police officers involved in Taylor's death. It's devastating, disgusting, and uh, downright wrong. We all, everybody, I feel like everybody sees that as wrong. Uh, but that's what we've been fighting for since we've been technically Americans. You know, we've been fighting for justice. And now that it's on a larger scale and social media and everybody just sees it and everybody can speak about it, not everybody knows it's wrong. And we need to fix it. But I don't know how we get it changed. The policies that that the police are protected, they got to get some of, some of those laws out of there. I feel like the no-knock warrant and then also uh, them not being held accountable for, like, gunshots going off. If that's what you want to have in place, you have to train the officers to not shoot people. You know it was a dirty job when they try to cover it up. They tried to cover it up with, like, multiple things. In this case, with Breonna Taylor, it wasn't like they could pin her criminal past on her because she was a law-abiding citizen. And she was in her house, sleep. Before there was Brianna Taylor in Louisville, George Floyd in Minneapolis, or Jacob Blake in Wisconsin, there was 25-year-old Freddie Gray in Baltimore. In 2015, Gray was arrested after running from police, then suffered neck and spine injuries in a Baltimore police vehicle. He died four days later, leading to massive protests in Baltimore. A violent, chaotic end last night to what had been largely peaceful yet vocal protests throughout the day in Baltimore. Businesses were vandalized, looted, police cars damaged, at least six police officers slightly injured in clashes. 
When it was over, at least 34 arrests, 1,200 police deployed in all, some in riot gear to restore calm. Three of the police officers charged in Gray's death were acquitted after standing trial, while charges against three other officers were eventually dropped. Our first guest, Gabriel Acevedo, represents Maryland's 39th district and was arrested while protesting Gray's murder. Acevedo is a politician and social activist who remains committed to holding police accountable for inappropriate actions. Let's go back to the roots of policing to try to understand its role in American society and how its relationship with the black community started. Acevedo believes many of the problems with policing today can be traced to how policing began in this country. When we talk about racialized policing and policing in America, we must examine not only the origins of law enforcement in the United States, uh, but how that has transformed into the institutions that we see today. And the reality of it is law enforcement in the United States has its origins uh, in slave patrols and in white supremacy and white nationalism and vigilante justice. And when we talk about racism in law enforcement, it's not only important for us to acknowledge the inception of law enforcement and the kind of a violence that we've seen throughout history exacted upon black and brown people in this country by law enforcement, but we must also recognize the implications that that has had um, and still has for policing in the United States today. So for instance, we see police departments and law enforcement agencies in some jurisdictions have placed officers on leave after finding out that they, in essence, were affiliated with uh, white nationalist groups outside of work. We see the city of Philadelphia recently took action to place a number of officers on leave after they had uh, discovered that these officers were involved with not just white nationalist groups, but uh, had been members for quite some time. And so what we see today is a racialized policing in America that not only is continuing to produce the disproportionate outcomes that we're seeing, but is further dividing communities and law enforcement who are charged with the responsibility of protecting and serving and in essence, administering public safety. But we the community are responsible not just for oversight and control, at least in theory, but that's not how it is in practice. But we, as the community in theory, uh, should have oversight, um, should have control over the way public safety is administered in our communities. Mark Ingram grew up in Flint, Michigan a city that is consistently ranked as one of the most dangerous in the United States by multiple sources. That's one of many issues in Flint, which hasn't had clean water since 2014. And yet, just two months ago, they broke ground on a new $20 million juvenile detention center, the Genesee Valley Regional Center. 
Flint is a blue-collar town. A lot of people who work hard, trying to do their best to, you know, be successful in their lives. And, you know, there's a lot of crime. It's a lot of violence. So, obviously, you know, the police were needed. It's just like, you, you always just like aware for them, too. Like, you know, they were everywhere. So, <laughs> you know, um, you didn't want to have, like, you know, problems. Or you, you wanted them to be there for the crime and all that. But, you know, getting pulled over sometimes or, uh, you know, different stories that you hear from, you know, cousins, uncles, mm -hmm. friends, family, you, you were kind of aware and didn't want to be around police all the time, you know, kind of nervous when you see police behind you or mm -hmm. if you get pulled over, you just kind of, you know, had nervous feelings just based off stories that you've heard. One of Mark's best friends is Dion Smith, now a Genesee County Sheriff's deputy based in Flint. Ingram and Smith bonded on the first day they met in high school. I saw him in the hallway one day, man, and we just walking in. You know, he introduced himself to me. He's like, hey, I'm Mark. And me and man, we kicked it off. And ever since that day, man, we've been tight. Smith is doing a great job changing negative perceptions of police officers in Flint. But when Mark first found out that Smith was planning to become a cop, a black cop in Flint, Ingram was surprised. Man, it was crazy. Like, you know, my dad has been incarcerated, locked up, so I've had my share of run-ins with the police, you know, trying to come to my house or, you know, and blase, blase. So when he told me he's going to be the police, I'm like, damn, you going to be the feds, man? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you you, you know what it is. And then, but, yeah, um, but he's just a guy, you know, he wants to make a positive impact, you know, in his community and um, wants to change the community for the better. And I think policing the community and, and how he could reach out to youth and how he could reach out to, you know, those who, you know, need it the most, he's the guy for the job. So I'm truly happy to see him doing great things, being a police officer and being successful being a police officer. Mark had no idea that his buddy Dion would become a police officer when they were in high school. But Dion knew. He always knew that being a cop was meant for him. I remember distinctly to this day, me and him, uh, our final game, looking at each other from the uh, opposite sides of the field. He was on, we were on defense, he, and we were just looking at each other, like just, you know, kind of shaking our heads and like, man, this is like the last game that we're going to be playing with each other because I didn't have any aspirations of going on and playing uh, at the next level. You know, I always wanted to be a police officer ever since I was a young boy helping people and seeing people smile and uh, doing what I can, you know, just to be a beacon of light. We'll hear from Deputy Smith later in the podcast and how he's making a difference in Flint. But first, let's talk about why we have this problem with police brutality in America. Now, you've lived in Flint, played college ball in Alabama, played in New Orleans, playing in Baltimore. No matter where you've been, there's been problems between police and the community, especially sure. the black community. Why do you think that is? I think one reason is, I remember when I was growing up, man, I feel like the police officers who was, you know, policing our communities were people who lived there. So, like, when I saw an officer at my school or I saw an officer at my football game or I saw an officer at my practice, like, or if they saw me, like, out, like, doing something with my friends, like, they weren't automatically like trying to target us they were like really trying to like help us teach us or if they saw us doing something wrong they'd be like get your butt out of here i'll tell your mom i'll tell your dad like you know what right. i mean right right like they're, they're holding you accountable and saying like you know they, they weren't just trying to target you and, and like you know pin you down and cuff you and take you in like they were really trying to help you become a better man you know what i mean right. and sometimes right. 
that didn't always work for every student, but for a lot of students it did, and for a lot of people in the community it did. And I think oh, where today's a lot of these officers policing these these communities, they're not from this. They're not, they're not living in that community. They're not they're not from that community. They don't have family. They don't have friends in that community. So. They don't. They, they don't take the same type of pride in that aspect of reaching out to the young guy who who is on the corner doing something wrong, or or or, or reaching out to um, a kid that you know stole something. You know what I mean? Trying mm-hmm. to and help him learn from that, help him grow from that, and help him and break that cycle. You know what I mean? Right. I think that's one of the big things, man. A lot of these uh, underprivileged and you know these black communities, a lot of the officers policing them are from there. They're not from that community. They're not living in that community, so it doesn't really matter to them. Uh, you know, what happens in that community. And I think that's one thing that's really happening um, that I've been noticing. Our next guest, former Baltimore police detective and current Ravens vice president of security, Darren Sanders, believed in connecting with the community when he was a member of Baltimore's police from 1987 until he retired in 2004 and joined the Ravens. Darren believes some of the issues revolve around how an officer approaches a job and the people they take an oath to protect and serve. A lot of people think law enforcement is all negative and ugly and bad, but it's not. And I guess it just depends on your mentality when you're dealing with the community. And I just never looked at it as always so negative and ugly and bad. Even when you work in some of these communities and some of these neighborhoods where crime is rampant, and the negativity can be bad, but it's it's all about your mindset. Cops are just regular people too. They're just in a different profession. In society, you've got good people, you've got bad people, you've got corrupt people, evil people. It's the same in law enforcement because we're picking from society in general. So you're gonna have good cops and bad cops, and you're gonna have the same issues in any company with people, because people are people. You hope you pick the cream of the crop. Sometimes you get it right. A lot of times you get it wrong. And the times you get it wrong just happen to be more exposed when you're a cop, when you have the ability to take someone's life or take someone's freedom justfully or unjustfully. And I think the other part of it, which goes unnoticed a lot of times, and this is a twofold problem. I think in society in general, there is a natural fear of black men perpetuated by the media sometimes with negative coverage and the stereotypes that go along with that as well. So there are some some cops who probably very suddenly deal with people other than who they look like unless they're working. So you have a biased thought about that person based on what? Because if, if you're not dealing with black people, you're getting your impression of them from TV or the new, you know, whatever, or someone's talking to you about it or you're dealing with all the negativity that you deal with in the community that you're working in. And maybe it compounds itself over time. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Mark Ingram II for this episode. Uh-huh. He made, I thought, an interesting point saying he believes that so many police officers today, they don't have a strong connection with the neighborhoods that they're serving. They don't know anybody in the neighborhood, don't live there, That's true. not connected. And he believes that that contributes sometimes to the disconnect in these crisis situations. You, you would agree with that? I would. When I became a cop, you could literally walk, patrol for hours and mingle with people. But the 911 call system is so overpopulated that cops don't have as much time to get out and do that because they're going from call to call to call. Right. 
and then they get backed up, and then you've got time constraints on getting paperwork done. So cops don't necessarily have the time or make the time to get out and actually mingle with the community. And it's black and white. We, you know, you had to get out of the community and deal with the people, not just always when you got a call. Um, so you had to go out and talk to them and sit on a step with them, uh, play ball with them. You know, I used to love playing a city game here called uh, Skelly. We play Skelly in the street. And it was kind of cool because I could take my police car and block off the streets so cars couldn't come by. So <laughs> we could be on our hands and knees in the, in the streets playing, playing Skelly. And that, okay. that would get such rave reviews from some of the parents in the community because they would see you as a regular person. And I think that's the other thing. Cops, if you're only dealing with the community from a law enforcement response perspective, they only see you as authority. They only see you when something is wrong. Right. So every time you come around or get out your car, people may start to walk away from you because uh, what's he coming to do now? Who's he coming to lock or who's he coming to hit on or whatever? And that's something that I kept in the back of my mind was get out and just be a regular person. I'm a people person in general. So I'm like, go mingle with the people. Go, go, go let them know you're not, you know, I'm from Baltimore. Yeah, I'm, I'm black. I'm a cop, but I'm from Baltimore. I know what it's like in these communities. I grew up in the communities myself. So. I used to work in the Reservoir Hill community uh, when I first came out in patrol and there, and there was a community meeting every week. And I literally would do my best to attend the community meeting to hear some of the complaints from the community members. And it was at the it was a mayor's station in the 2000 block of Park Avenue. I don't even know if it's still there. Uh, it was called the mayor's station. It served as a two point little spot for me. It was a hideout. I could ride up on the top of the hill and write my reports and and be out of everybody's way, be out of everybody's eyesight. But they had meetings held there also. So I would go up there and sit and talk to the community. And, and, and a lot of times, you know, I would catch flack because I was the only cop in there. So I was the one they could point the fingers out for actions of others. Mm-hmm. Um, but my shoulders were broad enough. I could take it. So I would, I would sit there and I would listen. I would engage with the community and just show them that, you know, all cops aren't bad. Being a police officer is an extremely difficult job and an important job. I have great respect for the majority of police officers who do their job well. But I believe more needs to be done to hold bad police officers accountable and to avoid situations that lead to tragic events like the death of George Floyd. According to the website mappingpoliceviolence.org, Derek Chauvin, the police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck, had 18 complaints filed against him before he kneeled on Floyd. The police officer who fairly shot 12-year-old Tamir Rice in 2014 had previously resigned from another police department after it had deemed him unfit to serve. Why does the killing and mistreatment of unarmed black people by police officers continue? I've had some difficult conversations with people when addressing this question. We start out talking about police brutality, but somehow the discussion shifts to black-on-black crime as a way to somehow defend police officers who have used violent force against unarmed black people. So let's look at some data. Since 2015, the Washington Post has logged every fatal shooting by an on-duty police officer in the United States. According to the Post, 
Although half the people shot and killed by police are white, black people are shot at a disproportionate rate, being killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. According to the FBI's homicide data in 2018, 89% of black homicide victims were killed by black people. But 81% of white homicide victims were killed by white people. Even though I never hear the phrase white on white crime. Meanwhile, many studies show that economics play a major role in where violent crimes occur. The statistics say our focus needs to be more on the link between poverty and crime, not race and crime. Now let's explore the possible solutions. The idea of defunding the police gained momentum after recent protests and at least 13 major cities as of mid-August have followed through with budget cuts. Baltimore is one of those cities, as its city council voted in June to eliminate $22 million in police spending for the upcoming fiscal year. The concept also drew backlash from people who feel police need more resources, not fewer. State Delegate Acevedo's goal is to improve more of the communities that the police are protecting, making it less likely they will be confronted with potentially violent situations. Every level of government at the federal, state, and local level, we need to be examining the funding that has been provided for law enforcement over the years and what we need to do differently as it relates to these budgets to ensure that we are pursuing data-proven solutions, right? The data-proven solutions that will keep us safe. We know what the solution to keeping us safe is. When we invest in education, when we invest in healthcare, when we invest in transportation, jobs, programs, when we invest in the health of communities, it means that we are all safer as a result. And so when we say defund the police, what we are in essence doing is setting up a budgetary discussion. When I say fund or defund, I am specifically discussing budgets. So let's take a look at the budget and let's take a look at the numbers. As a country, the United States spends around $115 billion annually on law enforcement. More than any other country spends on its military, save for China. As a state, Maryland spends over $2 billion on law enforcement and our correctional system. I live in Montgomery County. As a county, we spend around 300 million on our police department, not to include the sheriff's department. Baltimore City, where, you know, the Mighty Ravens rep, right? I mean, really, you rep the entire state, but Baltimore City, a third of its budget is allocated to BPD. And when we look at all this money, these millions and billions of dollars that we spend on law enforcement that continue uh, to increase year after year, and then we look at the kind of a disproportionate outcomes, and when we look at the fact that a number of communities do not feel safe and a number of communities do not trust law enforcement, 
and a number of police do not view law enforcement uh, positively in their communities, we have to shift not only the narrative, but funding to ensure that we're investing in areas that we have not invested in, such as housing, such as social workers, counselors, behavioral specialists, such as transportation, such as economic development, such as our schools and a youth jobs program. Those are the things that we should be focusing on and reallocating funds to. But we have instead invested in this police and carceral state for decades that has only led to millions and billions of dollars going to law enforcement agencies. Incarceration is at its highest. Our jails and our prisons are bloated. And our communities do not feel any more safe, rather over-policed and view law enforcement as occupying forces. And that is something that we need to shift because it is very dangerous if we do not. And so when we say defund the police, we're asking people to look at the numbers and what we invest and the return on that investment. And when we look at the return on the investment, it just doesn't add up. Another avenue in the goal to stem police brutality is police reform and accountability, a strategy that has been used for quite some time and continues to evolve. Body cameras became standard issue in many big city departments a few years ago, and now there are new proposals. The Ravens have written a letter to Senator Mitch McConnell supporting the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would address a wide range of policies and issues regarding police practices and accountability. State Delegate Acevedo is the author of Anton's Law, named after Anton Black, a 19-year-old unarmed black man who died in police custody in 2018 in Greensboro, Maryland. It focuses on reforming certain areas of Maryland law, such as the Maryland Public Information Act, to increase transparency and accountability. Anton's law would also establish statewide use of force standards to address the disproportionate use of force against people of color by law enforcement. No law enforcement officer should have these kind of procedural protections that prevent oversight and accountability and justice. We're working to establish a statewide use of force standard because it needs to be clear that life and the preservation of life must be paramount, including for law enforcement. I applaud the Ravens for supporting the Justice and Policing Act. What I would encourage and implore the Ravens to also do is to focus their advocacy and their efforts at the state level. As I mentioned earlier, states are in the driver's seat of the issue of police violence. States determine what is permissible policing. And every state that we've seen an instance of police brutality where there have been a lack of transparency, a lack of oversight and accountability and justice are states that have followed the lead of Maryland and passed some version of a law enforcement officer's bill of rights. And you can see the pattern here in terms of impeding in, um, accountability. And what I would encourage the Ravens to do is to not only support those efforts in Maryland and at the state level, but we also amplify the voices 
of the victims, the families, and the communities that have been hurt and, and, and are continuing to hurt as a result of police brutality. And I'll give a perfect example, the case of Anton Black. He was a 19-year-old college athlete that was full of life and had such a promising future and was an expectant father. And his life was snuffed out by a former officer who had a terrible service record in Delaware that many people were aware of. And because he was not prevented from becoming a law enforcement officer in Maryland, Anton Black is no longer here today. So when we talk about Freddie Gray in Baltimore City, when we talk about Corin Gaines in Baltimore County, when we talk about Robert White and Fernand Burhe in my county, in Montgomery County, when we talk about victims like Diamante Ward-Blake in Prince George's County and Anton Black on the Eastern Shore, we owe it to them to fight for the solutions and the policies that will bring an end to police violence. And that is what we must do. I'm pushing for Anton's law because I think it is not only important for us to remember this young man, but it is also important for us to listen to what the concern of the community was. When this young man was killed, the community and his family were asking for answers that were not being provided. There was no transparency. There was no kind of an accountability and oversight after he was killed. And Anton's law, in essence, provides that kind of a transparency so that communities can then know what is going on, right? So that victims and their families can know what is going on. And that's the essence of Anton's law. It's reforming the Maryland Public Information Act to ensure that complainants not only have information, but that we're making police misconduct records uh, public and available. Darren Sanders says it's imperative for the relationship between the Black community and police to improve, not only to protect citizens, but to prevent good cops from having the reputation of their profession further damaged. How much do you think incidents like George Floyd's murder and others we've seen have damaged the reputation of police officers in general? Oh, it definitely has. You hear about the police brutality issues or unarmed black men being killed. And you have, and, and they ask you because you're a black man, well, what do you think about this? How do you feel about that? Because you're a black man, but you were a cop. What do you think? Right. You probably right. side with the cops because you were a cop. And I'm like, no, I don't. I've never told it that thin blue line mentality, and I never will. I don't believe in siding with people just because we're on the same team. I think you and this sounds corny, and I've thought about this a lot when it's come to a couple other situations in the city. You should hear the sound of truth and justice. That's all, that's all cops should chase is truth and justice. And that sounds corny, but that's it. You just got to go where the facts lead you as far as the truth and let the chips fall where they may. That's just who I am as a person. You know, you just want to help people. And, mm -hmm. you know, somebody asked me the other day, what did the law enforcement oath mean to you when you when you swore in, I mm -hmm. said, I'm going to be honest with you, bro. The only thing I remember from swearing in was, man, do I really want to do this in Baltimore City? I wanted to be a Maryland State Trooper at the time, but they had hiring issues of minorities, so I didn't, I didn't get on. The only thing I remember is to 
protect and serve, you know, and it says corny. I said, I don't remember all the other mumbo jumbo that I swore to, but I do remember the protect and serve. And I think that's something that cops have to realize that we are servants of the community and to protect them when need be or protect fellow officers when need be. And I think that's something that we all have to get back to is understanding what our what our mission is. Sure. Now, you've been obviously through police training. There's been a lot of talk about police training in general. Right. As a former cop, do you have suggestions regarding police training that you would make changes that you think would help reduce some of the incidents that we're seeing that result in unarmed men being murdered? Now, again, because I think some of the implicit biases, when I went through the academy, there was no training on interacting or do you have any biases towards blacks or whites or or gays or whatever. I think they need to put some of that training into the program so you can get some type of evaluation on what people's mentality is towards other people. Yeah, like sensitivity training. You got to. You got to. And I think something else that is huge in law enforcement is there are no mental health evaluations for, for law enforcement after you get hired unless you have a shooting situation or or ugly situation that might cause you some stress. But other than that, there's, there are no mental health evaluations that you go through. And I think cops need to have annual mental health evaluations to make sure that they are good. And maybe additional sensitivity training because I do believe some cops get jaded to the communities they work in because they see the negativity so much that everything becomes, everybody is bad. So they treat everybody the same way and in a negative way. So maybe they need to have some more evaluations of the officers to make sure mentally they are healthy and that they are not subjecting these community people to negative thoughts that they've had over the years of working in these areas. Yeah, so you're saying in a high stress job like being a police officer, if you once you once you get in and if you don't have a shooting incident, you could be a guy or, or person developing some mental health issues yep. and no one no one would check you on it before an incident happened. No. You have no evaluations throughout your career unless something happens. Right. And I know guys that were on the job who were on the edge a lot. You know, you know, you know, alcoholism is big in police officers, you know, late nights, staying up, not getting enough sleep. And all that goes against you having sound judgment when you need to be sharp or when you don't or, or maybe you don't need to be so aggressive. Um, and I think you need to be evaluated. I think right. you need to have more evaluation of officers throughout the course of their careers. I think it should be annually. Mark Ingram points to his close friend, Deion Smith, as someone doing his part to change negative perceptions of police officers in Flint, Michigan. Smith drew national attention when he was filmed interacting with protesters in Flint who were on the street following Floyd's murder. As a black officer, what I saw that day, I was disgusted. As an officer, period, I was disgusted. Justice needs to be served. As a police officer, you guys look to us as the ones that comes in your communities and keeps you safe. Why are we afraid? Your great question, why are you afraid? Because of the things that are being depicted and the things that you see on the media and the things that bad officers are doing. Yep, thanks. I believe that there's more good. I do. 
It's people out there that want to do what we do. That want to. I, I, I encourage you to stand up and come do it. The young men that look like me. I encourage you to come in and police your communities. That's the only thing. Say that again. The young men that look like me. I need you to come in and police your communities. And don't base it off of fear. I need that community to uplift those young Forgive men. Forgive what your home, your home I need you to life. uplift them so they can become something that are great. We're all gifted. Everyone that was born, we're all gifted. We all got something to give off. We don't let fear stop us. And the police, we can't let fear dictate on how we do things and how we handle people. I mean, it just shows you the type of character that this guy has. I mean, that's my brother. I love him to death. For him to stand up in a moment like that in a hostile moment like that where people are on edge and the world's on edge and it's like everybody against police officers he stood up there with conviction saying like um this is unacceptable he said so many gems and um i watched that thing man and it almost brought tears to my eyes because like mm -hmm. i said like we grew up together man that's my brother for him to stand up in front of protesters and to bring a community together and to have police officers and citizens and the entire community walk hand in hand in peaceful protesting in my in, my, in the city where i grew up in flint michigan um I, I thought that was the true example of how we should be protesting and how community and how officers should come together to uh, to make our communities better to make those community relationships better between law enforcement and citizens. And for them to do that together peacefully, uh, it was a true example of how we should be protesting and going about this thing. I got Martin Luther King, Malcolm X vibes, the way he yep. was talking to people, you know what I mean? So um, I love my guy to death, and uh, it just shows you that, you know, he's meant for that. He has a bigger calling than just being a police officer. His calling is to change people, change the community, change lives. And, um, you know, we need more law enforcement with the mindset like him. Here's how Smith recalls that day. May 25th, the day that George Floyd, you know, was murdered, man, completely changed the way that policing is done. Uh, and we'll look now into the future. Um, that speech was done seven days after that, which was May 31st. I wanted to be a, on that platform for young men and women of color to, 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 to look at and say, man, I can do it because I saw Dion do it. And I just prepared myself for the opportunity. I was talking to a couple of the protesters. They were, you know, saying, you know, we appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being out here. And, 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 it, and it just, you know, it, it touched me. And when I was walking, it came to that dead heat. And a guy that, I, that I've known um, from school growing up, he was one of the um, leaders of the protest. And he gave me like that eye contact. You kind of like knew like it was coming like okay so i kind of was just you know came up off off the cuff at first there was a little a little fear you can say because of the environment you know you know what you say you don't want to offend anyone um but i said to myself i said the the potential impact that this could possibly have far exceeded the risk at that moment in time for me and when I spoke, um, I just spoke from my heart. Uh, I spoke with, with, with compassion. You know, I spoke with love. Uh, I spoke from a space where a young kid growing up in the urban community, when you see things like that being done, you say to yourself, what can I do to help? And being a police officer is the greatest job in America. 
because you got the ability to impact somebody's life every single day because we come into contact with people every single day. And having that ability to do that and is so humbling. Um, it's so encouraging. And then the times that we're living in today, we need more of it. We need more of our, our police officers out there that are fighting hard. And I'm saying that, you know, some some guys aren't, but the guys that you know that you, you got your feet to the ground, you're fighting so hard. You need to you need to come out and let your community know that you care about them and you stand with them and you want to be with them, and you're gonna you you're gonna be the solution to the change. At least you're gonna do the best you can to be the solution to the change. So that day uh, will always be near and dear to my heart. George Floyd's murder was absolutely horrible. That was just me coming from the heart, Cliff, and uh, speaking with passion. It definitely showed. Now, in your opinion, is police brutality a problem in America, and is it disproportionately a problem for black Americans? And if so, why is that? We got to understand that the communities that we are policing, when you police in the African-American communities, you got to be able to come in and you got to be able to build reports with the people in these communities. You have to learn these people in these communities. You have to understand where these, where these people in these communities are coming from. When you make decisions and choices off of that, then and you're not educating yourself on the conditions of the people in their community, then you make bad decisions. When I graduated from police academy, there was a, a, a creed that we lived by. It said, I will enforce the law courteously and appropriately without fear or favor, malice or ill will, never employing unnecessary force or violence, and never accepting gratuities. So we got to understand when we're when we in, in these communities, we have to look at people and say, what is it that I can do to help? Well, how can I be a better police officer based off of this situation to help this situation go right. When we do those things, people will be more forthcoming to us and want to talk to us more. You, when we will get away from this narrative of, you know, this police brutalities and things of that nature. So it just comes down to Cliff, man, just learning these people in your communities, implementing yourself to these people in these communities and showing them that you really care and you love them. And I think that they will show the same thing back to you as well. And that's educating yourself, as I said previously, educating yourself on the communities, learning the norms of these communities so that you can be a well-rounded police officer. And when they see you, they say they know what type of police officer you are. They know what your standards and your values are as a police officer. And they will, they will, they will adhere to you more. They will be more want to come and talk to you more. They will be wanting to listen to you more. And you will find that to be more effective for you when you get out here and you start policing. Um, when I put on my uniform in every single day, I ask the good man to allow me to, to learn. Let me learn something new that I didn't know from the previous day. Let me, let me impact somebody's life by the way that we interact, you know? And those are the things that's gonna help push and bridge that gap between community and law enforcement to make it stronger and to make it tighter. We heard Dion Smith's vision of what policing in this country should be. But in 2016, Colin Kaepernick clearly stated that police violence against unarmed black people was one of the main reasons why he was kneeling. 
and not enough people listened. Anquan Bolden's cousin should still be alive. Black players in the NFL are still terribly worried that one of their friends or relatives could become the next George Floyd. The brave police officers that protect and serve us doing their jobs well should be appreciated and supported. But the ones who are needlessly violent should be held accountable and weeded out. We should be having real conversations about the future of policing and the investments in the communities they are tasked with serving and protecting. I got lucky that night when my friends and I were surrounded by police cars and police dogs. Things didn't escalate further. But sadly, too many other brothers and sisters haven't been so lucky. An often overlooked line of Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963 is this quote. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. Almost 60 years later, we all saw the murder of George Floyd in broad daylight. The unspeakable horrors are still taking place. And that's why NFL players are speaking out. Black in the NFL is powered by Blue Wire. The show is produced and edited by Noah Eberhardt and executive produced by Michelle Andres, Ryan Mink, John Yales, and Peter Moses. Tune into the Ravens Podcast Network for two other podcasts, The Lounge, hosted by Garrett Downing and Ryan Mink, and What Happened to That Guy, hosted by John Eisenberg. Thanks to all my guests, and join us for the next episode of Black in the NFL. Until then... Be blessed, and thanks for listening. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real Steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details.